Well, good morning. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. I get the opportunity to preach this morning. If you're new at Cornerstone, welcome. It's great to have you with us. We're in the middle of a series that we're going through this summer through the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll be back in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. If you need a Bible, we've got some ushers who would love to put one in your hand. But if you would... Last week, we looked at the first half of Isaiah, this this profound vision in which Isaiah sees the holiness of God and is brought to the end of himself, despairs of any hope of surviving the situation. But not only is he not destroyed, he is cleansed and purified and made holy by the Holy One of Israel. And at the end, we saw how the only logical response for Isaiah was to throw himself into God's servant. I'll do, what, do whatever you want me to do. I don't even know what the job is yet, but I'll do it, right? So would, if you are able to, would you stand with me? We're going to read through Isaiah chapter 6 one more time to get the whole picture. And then this week, we'll be focusing in the second half of the book. Isaiah 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full Of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But then, One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go. And say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is the stump. You can take a seat. This week, we're picking up where we left off last week. Isaiah offers himself in God's service, and then God says, okay, here's the job that I have for you. And to be honest, this one was tough for me as I was preparing for it, because there were about four different messages I wanted to preach from this chapter. 
I mean, as I read this chapter, as I studied it this week, there's so much in this passage about the sovereignty of God in evangelism, in the preaching of the gospel, that the same message hardens one and softens another. This passage speaks so much to how God uses suffering and trials to, to both discipline his people and to prove those who are truly his. It speaks about how when God calls us to his service, he calls us to faithfulness. The way Eugene Peterson put it, he calls us to a long obedience in the same direction. Even though oftentimes it can be hard, tiring, and, and from all outward appearances seemingly unfruitful. But yet God calls his servants to faithfulness. But we don't have time for every one of those messages this morning. But I want to at least dangle those things out there to you. What I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to focus us in on this idea of holiness. Because I think that holiness is kind of the basic idea that holds this whole chapter together. But I wanted you to know those other huge topics that are here in this passage. I'm leaving a lot of meat on the bone, if you will. Some of it Chris will come back to in the next couple of weeks. Some of it I encourage you to explore for yourselves. But when we look at this chapter and what it teaches us about holiness, about both what it means that God is holy and what it means for God to make people holy, it's really what strings this whole chapter together. The chapter begins with this vision of the holy, holy, holy God. And then in the middle, we have unclean Isaiah who is cleansed and purified and made holy. And then at the very end, we have this mysterious reference to a holy seed in a stump. What does all of that mean? And especially, what does that mean for us today? That's what we're looking at. Now, to start with, I know last week was a holiday weekend, and so some of you weren't here. And even if not, there's a lot that's happened in the past week for all of us. So what, what I found was there's a great video that the guys from the Bible Project have put together that traces this idea of holiness throughout the whole biblical story. And for about a minute in the middle of the video, they focus on this scene here in Isaiah 6. So whether you were here last week or not, I think this is a great way both to recap and to set us up for where we're going. So if you will, go ahead and turn your attention to the screens and we'll watch this together. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So, a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so, you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. 
and Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place, this the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus, but instead Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but 
Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. Is that helpful? Good recap. I love the way that that vision gives, or that, that video gives us such a grand vision that holiness, again, is not just this weird sort of detachment from the world around us. I am somehow better or cleaner than you. But instead, it is both this, this personal reality. What we see happen with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 is a very personal thing, that interaction with the coal that makes him holy. But that holiness is not just personal or individual, it is meant to be corporate. It is meant to be something that that affects us as the people of God. And that holiness is also not just some vertical thing that impacts my relationship with God. It's also a horizontal reality, if you will, that's meant to impact those around me as well. We have to keep the personal and the corporate together when we think about holiness. And we have to keep the vertical and the horizontal together in our minds too. Does that make sense? Here, let's walk through this. Because here's the point. Holiness, when God makes someone holy, it always has a purpose. He always has a purpose in mind for it. He always has a mission that he's seeking to accomplish. He calls people to be distinct, set apart, different than those around them but to do that for the sake of those around them. One of the first places we see this with the nation of Israel is here in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, when God first calls Abraham in this unique relationship. He says to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land I will show you. Leave, be separate, distinct, set apart, holy. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You will be a unique people enjoying my blessing, but not just to be a container of that blessing. Look at the way it ends. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see that? Israel was called into a unique relationship with God in order to then represent Him and be His channel of blessing to the nations. The vertical and the horizontal go together. You see that? Does that make sense? You guys awake this morning? Yes? Okay, okay. I know a couple of y'all just got back from Israel. You're a little jet-lagged. The rest of y'all, let's go. Here we go. This is so huge. As, you, as, you, as we understand the biblical story, we see that from the moment Adam and Eve disobeyed, the entire world and humanity has come into bondage to sin and death. And God's plan to rescue the world is to take one man, make him into a nation, so that he can bless all nations through them. This is such a big deal. His rescue plan all centers around this holy people representing him to the world. But it was all contingent upon the people of Israel remembering who God was, who God is, and who they were in relationship to him. That's why we've been going after that so hard in the book of Isaiah. They'd forgotten who God was. They'd forgotten who they were in relationship to him. 
And the stakes of this are huge. Look what God says a little bit later. After he rescues the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, in Exodus chapter 19, he speaks to them from Mount Sinai, and he says, you saw what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. In the video, they depict the way that the role of the priests was to draw closer to God's presence than anyone else. And in order to do that, they needed to maintain a level of both moral and ritual purity in order for it to be safe for them to be in God's presence. But not just so that they could enjoy this nice relationship, but because their role as mediators was to represent God to the people and to represent the people to God. And what God is telling the nation here in Exodus chapter 19 is that the whole nation has a very similar role amongst the nations around them. In the same way that the priests represented God to the people and the people to God, Israel represented God to the world out of that unique relationship. This is why, if you've been spending time reading the book of Isaiah, God's words in Isaiah are often very harsh and startling. And it's because the stakes are so huge. If Israel forgets who they are, if they forsake God's covenant, if they have no desire to live in relationship with Him, there is no plan B. This is God's plan to redeem the world from sin and death. The stakes are huge, not just for Israel's welfare, but for the salvation of the world. That's why he doesn't mince words in this book. We have to understand that context. Sometimes God just sounds like he's flying off the handle, like he's really mad. There is anger. There is wrath because of sin. But it's not just because it's an affront to God. It's because it's also a a forsaking of their purpose. But at the same time, God makes it very clear throughout the book of Isaiah that though he will judge the people, though he will fight against them and destroy them and take them off into captivity, at the same time, he will not destroy all. He will preserve a remnant of the people, a small percentage of the people. And he promises that one day he will restore and transform them and accomplish his purpose through them. The basic message of the book of Isaiah is this. God is telling His people, my plan will not fail, but I will judge those who reject their part in it. Does that make sense? That's why throughout this book, the dual themes of judgment and hope run through the whole thing. God will judge those who forsake Him. And he will still accomplish. He will still be faithful to his promises. And we see both of those themes here in Isaiah chapter 6. Look again at verse 8. Isaiah offers himself to the Lord in service. What's the job? I'm willing to do it. I don't know what it is. What is it? And again, God says, go tell them. Keep hearing, but you won't understand. Keep on seeing, but you won't perceive. Your hearts are dull, your ears are heavy, your eyes are blind. You'll keep talking to them, they won't get it. Their hearts are dull, their ears are heavy, their eyes are blind, and as a matter of fact, Isaiah, your preaching will make the problem worse. These people will not repent and they will not be healed. 
I wonder if at this point Isaiah's going, gosh, I really should have asked God for a job description before I offered myself, right? At the same time, he's already on the hook. He's already offered himself in service to God. But what he does ask is, how long do I need to do this? This does not sound fun. This does not sound enjoyable. How long do I have to do this? How long, O oh Lord? And the Lord said, okay, until the cities lie waste and the houses don't have people, the land's a desolate waste, the Lord removes people far away, and even if a tenth remains in the land, it will be burned again. Isaiah, keep preaching this message. Be faithful to me. And again, if you've read Isaiah, it's not all doom and gloom. There is majestic passages about the promises of what God will do. But God tells Isaiah from the beginning, the results to expect from your ministry is that it will all fall on deaf ears. But keep doing it. Be faithful. But did you catch that little glimmer of hope at the very end? He says, the people are going to be like a tree that's chopped down. That's all that's left is the stump. But then he says, you know what that stump is? That stump is a holy seed. It's a burnt stump, but it's not a dead stump. New life will spring from it. There's a seed in there, and that seed is holy. Do you get that? In all the destruction that God promises that he will carry out against his people, we have to understand, this is not God flying off the handle in rage. And this is not just, not only justice and retribution, though it is that. All of the destruction that God would send on his people was also for the purpose of purging and cleansing and purifying them. Just as earlier in the chapter, Isaiah is purified by this encounter with the coal. So the people of God, Israel, would be corporately purified through judgment. And only a small remnant would be left. But that remnant would be holy. They would be purified by God's grace in order to fulfill God's purpose. They would live in right relationship with God and they would represent Him to the nations. Only a small of them, but God will accomplish His purpose. He says something very similar back in chapter 4. He says, In that day, in this coming day in the future, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst, get this, by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. How would he cleanse and purify his people? Through judgment and burning. But in the end, those who are left will be holy. Now, there's so much more to this story. There's so much more that we could get, go into, both in terms of what Isaiah does as he continues to carry on these themes of hearing and versus deafness and seeing versus blindness throughout the rest of the letter. As he continues to carry on these promises of a faithful remnant that God will preserve. But there's so much more that happens. The people do experience God's judgment. They, many of them are killed. Many of them are taken away into captivity in Babylon. But just as God's promised, 
He does preserve a remnant of the people, and he does bring them back to the land. He is faithful to his promises. But really, this idea of having a holy people, it's not until 700 years after Isaiah's time, when Jesus comes on the scene, that we finally start to see this, this new life, this, this new life spring from this stump of what's left of the people of Israel. And I thought they did a great job depicting that in the video we watched a few minutes ago. I love when they say that Jesus is the, the human embodiment of God's own holiness. That he is like that coal from Isaiah, this holy thing from the presence of God that comes and is not defiled by our sin and sickness and uncleanness, but instead his purity purifies us. We sang that in the song. For I am his and he is mine. We've been cleansed and washed by the precious blood of Christ. Amen? Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has made a way, not just for Israel, but for people from every tribe and tongue and nation to be cleansed and purified and made holy, to be brought into this relationship with God, and to be incorporated into this mission to represent God to the world. Now, here's the kicker. If I, if I lost you at some point, I know we're doing a lot of Old Testament kind of history and background. If I lost you at some point, check in right here. Jesus Christ, our Savior, this is how big he is. Jesus is not only the perfect representation of God's holiness. He is also the perfect representation of what it means for people to be holy. Do you see that? He is both the display of the holiness of God and the perfect display of what it means to be one of his holy people. He shows us both what it means that God's holy and what it means for people to be holy. He shows us both the vertical idea of holiness in that he existed in perfect relationship with his Father and the horizontal idea of holiness in that he perfectly represented God to those around him. Jesus came as a Jew. He came as a member of the family of Abraham. And that is so absolutely key because he came to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 to bless the nations through that family. He is the fulfillment of that promise. As Isaiah says it later in Isaiah chapter 49, in talking about this servant who would come on behalf of Israel, he says, man, it's too light a thing. I'm going to do more with you than just bring back my people, Israel. He says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the world through the people of Israel. If you are in here today, and as far as you know, whether you did 23andMe or not, you have no actual biological relationship to Abraham. The fact that you get to share in the blessing of salvation through Jesus Christ means Jesus has fulfilled that promise. Amen? Gosh, thank you, God, for that. We had no right. I love how Ephesians 2 talks about it. How formerly we were, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were without God and without hope in the world. But now through Jesus Christ, we who were far off have been brought near. But get this. If Jesus is the light to the nations... How does that light get to the nations? If Jesus is the one through whom God's salvation will reach to the ends of the earth, how does it get to the ends of the earth? This is where it hits the ground for us. This is where we're going to spend our last several minutes together. What do we do with this? 
How does the good news of God's salvation get to the ends of the earth? As those who are saved by Jesus take the good news of salvation through Jesus to the ends of the earth. Do you get that? To be saved by Jesus is to be sent by Jesus to bring that message of salvation to others. They go hand in hand. You cannot separate them from each other. They're two sides of the same coin. Just as Israel was called into a special, holy relationship with God in order to represent Him to the world, the same is true for you and I who follow Jesus. To have the vertical relationship is to have the horizontal mission. Does that make sense? That's what it means to be holy. I said at the beginning, holiness always has a purpose. It always has a mission to be accomplished. I shared this quote with you last week from Sinclair Ferguson. When he says this, To sanctify, to make something holy, means that God repossesses persons and things that have been devoted to other uses and have been possessed for purposes other than his own. And he takes them into his own possession in order that they may reflect his own glory. To be made holy is not only to be cleansed and purified of your sin, it is to be repossessed and repurposed for God's glory. Have you experienced that? Have you been repurposed and repossessed by God? Like we said last week, have you offered yourself the only logical conclusion for those of us who have been purified by the grace of God through Jesus Christ is just like Isaiah to say, here I am, Lord. Send me. Wherever it is, I don't even know the job description first. Your Lord, your King, I'll go. But we do know the job description. To be called into a relationship with God is to represent Him in our relationships with others. Have you embraced your holy calling? Are you seeking to be holy, both in your relationship with God and the way you represent Him? I mean, in one sense, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you are already holy. We talked about that last week. But in another sense, for every single one of us, there is the need to, for ongoing growth in holiness. To continue to repent and turn from sin. To, to continue to become more like the one who has made us holy in our conduct, our, our thoughts, our, our desires. This is what theologians often talk about is the difference between definitive holiness and progressive holiness. That by faith in Jesus Christ, we have been definitively declared and made holy. And therefore, we are called to be that, to, to grow into who we already are. Are you doing that? Is that the driving focus in your life? Jesus, you've called me into a relationship with yourself, so I'm going to be, I want to be as close to you, and I want to be transformed to be as like you as I can, both because I love this relationship and because you've called me to represent you. Is that what drives you? This is what we're here for. One of the places this comes through best is in the book of 1 Peter where Peter, a Jewish follower of Jesus, thinks through this whole idea of holiness, what it meant to be holy as a Jew, and what it means to be holy now as a follower of Jesus Christ. And he goes, guys, it's both. It's vertical and it's horizontal. Look what he says here. 1 Peter 1, verse 14. 
As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The call to follow Jesus is the call to pursue holiness in all our conduct because our God is holy in all his conduct and we represent him to the world. Why do we do this? Because we're obedient children. We have been adopted, adopted by God into his family. We now carry the family name. Get this. If you are a follower of Jesus, no matter what you did, no matter what you're doing now, if you have your faith in Jesus Christ, do you understand the God of the universe, the holy, holy, holy one has staked his reputation to you. He has tied his honor to you. That's why Peter says this a little bit later. He says, so therefore, if the honor of God has been attached to us, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the watching world, honorable. Represent your father's honor well, so that even if they speak against you and call you evildoers, they'll see your good deeds and they'll glorify your father. They'll glorify God on the day of visitation. These commands are not addressed to us just as individuals, but also to us corporately. These are y'all commands. Just a couple verses earlier, Peter takes the same titles that God gave to Israel back in Exodus 19, and he applies them to us as the church. This hodgepodge, motley group of Gentiles and Jews and whatever, barbarians, all that kind of stuff, rumpled together, is yet still a chosen race, not an ethnic race, but an adopted people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see, again, the vertical. We are the chosen people of God. We are the treasured possession of God, and we are a kingdom of priests called to declare his excellencies, both to him in praise like we just did when we were singing, we'll do again in a second. And as those who've been called out of darkness into his wonderful light, we are called to declare God's excellencies to those still in darkness so that they with us can come into that marvelous light. This is why we exist as a church. To love God and to love people. To give every individual an accurate picture of God by helping those who believe become fully devoted followers of Jesus. That's our purpose, even. That's why we exist. Each of us is called to pursue personal holiness, to pursue ongoing transformation through the gospel. And together as a church, we are called to corporate holiness as a church, to practice the one another commands that we see in the New Testament. To love one another like Jesus has loved us. Do not coddle each other in our sin. To call it out, but not beat each other over the head either. We are called to pursue holiness. And one of the ways Jesus told us to do that is he says it's kind of like taking the log out of your eye so that you can help your brother with the speck in his. Either way, the whole point is so that we can see Jesus more clearly and represent him more accurately to the world around us. 
We are called, as we often say around here, to be distinct from the world. To be set apart, holy, different. To have an unrivaled devotion to Jesus Christ that is evident in our lives, our speech, our relationships, in the way that we organize our lives, the way that we spend our resources, the way that we use our time. But by no means in embracing this distinct holy relationship with God, by no means are we to withdraw or retreat or isolate ourselves from the world around us. By no means are we called to pursue our own comfort and security. We are holy to God so that we may represent Him to the world. We are to be distinct from the world for the sake of the world. Is that the reality you're pursuing in your life? Our community needs us not just to have flashy communication and good events. Our community needs us to be the holy people that God has called us to be because we and the other gospel-teaching churches here in Simi Valley are the best hope they have to encounter the Savior. This is huge. God's purpose in us as a holy people is to make himself known through us through our distinction from the world and our our love and service and devotion to those in the world around us. As one of your pastors and elders, this is the hill I'll die on. There's a million different ways in which this needs to play out in our midst that we will explore and continue to explore together. But we will not. We will not move on from this. If you are looking for a safe place to stay the same, this is not the church for you. If you are looking to be a part of a group of people who will passionately pursue God because we know we're not done being transformed to be like Him. If you want to not coddle and protect your sin, but pursue transformation through this same gospel that has saved us. This is the church for you. My role as your, as your equipping pastor is to equip us for this task. To equip us beginning, especially with our leaders, to understand the story that we're a part of, to understand God's story, to to pursue ongoing transformation, to believe what's true and be able to speak sound doctrine in the midst of the changing world that we live in, and especially to communicate that gospel in all of life and to all the world. That's what we're about as a church. That's who God has called us to be. If you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I pray that you will be. But my prayer for you is this. I want you to understand that we exist as a church, all of us, not just me up here on the stage, we exist as a church so that through our conduct, you might see and know who God is like. We won't do this perfectly, and we'll try to be honest about when we mess it up. But we want you to see the goodness of God through our lives so that you can see that He loves you passionately, and that he calls you to turn from your sin and follow him. But church, never forget, we are not a community organization. We are not a social club. We are not an events center. We are an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. Whether we are gathered together in this building 
or scattered around our community throughout the week. Get this. We are where lost people encounter the only Savior that there is. That's us. That's who we are. We're also where found people learn to follow and love and reflect the Savior better than before. That's what we're here for. We are disciples of Jesus who exist to make disciples of Jesus. Come what may, we're not moving from that. Amen? That's where we're going. And, and if you're here at Cornerstone, man, I hope you're coming with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the unbelievable privilege to have a distinct, holy relationship with you. We don't deserve it. It is absolutely from beginning to end a gift of your sovereign grace. May we never feel entitled to it. May we never feel exclusive with it. May we never get to the point where we feel like it is just a me and Jesus thing or even just an us and Jesus thing. You have called us in this vertical relationship with you to horizontally make you known to others. This is something we are already endeavoring to do, but would you continue to sharpen and focus us in that way so that the world might know that you are good, that you are king, and you are coming again to make all things new. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.